Hello, Spacers from Austin, Texas. I'm Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, I'm talking with Tammy Everts. Her current role is senior researcher and evangelist at SOSTA, a performance intelligence consultancy. She's been working on the web since mid-1990s, and her career path to performance evangelism is an interesting one. Our main focus for the show is about mobile performance. Who is using mobile? How are they using the web on mobile devices? And the biggest issues facing colleagues as they develop for mobile. So it's a great show. Some notes before we get started. Uh, I'll be hosting the Access U Summit. It's a one-day, one-track virtual conference about advanced web and mobile accessibility. You get up to speed on accessibility without you and your colleagues leaving the office, and you still get to see great speakers talking about law accessibility, forms accessibility, crash courses in accessible tools, and much, much more. Learn more and register now to grab early bird tickets at accessusummit.com. That's access, the letter U, summit, all one word, dot com. Also, CSS DevConf is a conference that tackles CSS and much more. Topics include SAS, PostCSS, JavaScript, React, and many more languages and topics related to web building. You can join awesome speakers in San Antonio like Rachel Andrews, Chris Coyer, Trent Walton, Snook, Estelle Weil, and many more. Uh, we would love for you to be with us, so please grab an early bird ticket at cssdevconf.com. Set and forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter. When the show's ready, you can have it delivered directly to your email box without any worry by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Find show notes and links at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T, where I try to be witty in spite of my many, 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 many typos. As always, thank you for subscribing, liking, and telling others about Nonbreaking Space Show on iTunes. Now, on with the show. We're not very professional, Tammy. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Without being like, it's totally okay. You're, it's not that you're you're real. It's about it's more branding it. You're just really real. Just very authentic. <laughs> that's where I'm coming from. Damn, yeah, that's where... Well, thank you for being here. Um, and one of the first questions we ask is, how did you get involved with the web? You know, what was your first oh, contact God. with the web? And or you know, that'd be kind of yeah, just you know. <laughs> Like going back to the very beginning. Yeah. So I'm really old. So my first contact with the web was um, like IRC. So I was really into IRC back in the early 90s. So and then, you know, then the World Wide Web came along and I was like, oh, whoa, you can see stuff and read words and stuff. It's not <laughs> just people talking to each other. So, um, yeah, that was that was it for me. I, I am back in the I guess it was 95 um, my husband and a friend and I um, actually started a, a, a kind of pop culture, like sort of Slate before there was Slate, and they came along about a year after us. And it's uh, you can't even find it on the the any kind of archive, but it was called Uber. We owned the domain Uber.com. <laughs> And oh, we nice. sold it around 98 because we all went our, you know, kind of our separate ways. And and, right, and, yeah. and we sold it. We made small thousands of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> the last I heard when it changed hands, it was worth many millions of dollars. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's my claim to internet fame. And, you know, a little internet bit. History. Yeah. A little bit more scratch now. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, it's, it, well, it's also like, oh man, we just, we have a whole podcast about, losing domain names and giving them up and, and what yes. they mean. Cause I think they're like, they're names for, for projects that'll never see the light of day. They're like wishes that you make. Yeah. I, I, I own about 20 different domains for like blogs I want to start. And I have some <laughs> like half baked started blogs that were, where I haven't published any posts yet, but it's, it's fun. It's just nice. It's like you have an idea and like you have an, really you have an idea for a great domain name yeah. and then you go and find it and it's available. So you, uh, so you, 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 you grab it. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, ideas like that are just so intoxicating. Like, oh yeah, the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And nobody's taken this URL yet. Like, it's still <laughs> available. Like, obviously, there's a market for this. So yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, totally understand. Uh, I, would, I wish I could wish I could read Uber in '98. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Oh no, like 90, 95. 95, 95 to '98. Yeah, those oh. are the golden years for Uber.com. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> 
Um, so performance, you know, which is because you, know, you are talking about web performance now. But I do want to talk about, I found something that you uh, in the web, and I have no idea what the context it is in terms of time. So you, maybe you could put it into context sure. if it's something you just did recently or or a while back. But I've I re- in my research, it says that you invented the activity impact score. It's the I- metric system I, I i can't take any credit for inventing it at all i wrote okay. about it i'm kind of like the amplifier um okay. so um uh, some people at sosta specifically um so our our our, our founder ken gardner co-founder um he is really really into data science and data analytics. And so he worked with one of our data scientists, Ben Polovic, to um, do basically, we, we had done something called the conversion impact score, which was also a Ken and, 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 and Ben uh, production uh, okay. that measures the impact of, of uh, load time on relative conversion rate, so, which, is really, which is really neat. And then they had the idea, well, what, what would be a good metric to look at for media sites where they don't care about conversions? And so, it, so they came they, they kind of struck on session length as a really as a really good metric, and so the activity impact score uh, measures the relative impact of load time on session length. So it's 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 pretty cool. I can I can talk about that for the whole rest <laughs> of our conversation if you want, or you can just cut me off and ask me some questions. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, yeah. so so I mean, just talk about it like that. Just I guess describe it, and then so okay. so it's like uh, the load length, like the load of bringing avoid the website versus how long they stay stay on the website is that yeah so it's the it's a it's it's looking at median load times across different page groups so for example you might have a group that's articles or you might have a uh, or a, another group um, that is around all of the different buckets that your content goes in so like news politics um, you know, sports, et cetera. And so people who use um, RUM tools, when they tag their pages, they tag them to fall into these different buckets, these page groups. And so uh, we look at the median uh, load time for these page groups, and then we correlate that. And there's a, it, the algorithm alone um, is, uh, well, actually the summary document that just describes the algorithm is six pages long. <laughs> and then the yeah, so <laughs> just to give you a little backstory there, there's some very, very meaty data science going on here. Um, and then, uh, so there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but the really simple version is, yeah, it just correlates to, um, session length. So the takeaway is that, uh, for example, a media site, and we have several media sites that are, that are so to customers that want a metric like this. If you're a media site, you can look at a graph that shows the, um, the, the, Activity impact scores for all your different page groups, as and as well alongside the load times for those different page groups. And so it's really interesting because if without the activity impact scores, you can fall into a few different fallacies. You can you can um, if you're a performance engineer, you just look at what are the slowest pages on your site and you tackle those first. Or if you are pretty much anybody, you focus on your homepage because everybody thinks or knows or believes that their homepage performance is the most important uh, thing on their site. Um, but what active activity impact scoring does is let you know that, well, actually maybe homepage isn't that big a deal for your users. Like maybe if you make those pages faster or slower, it doesn't really have that much of an impact on session length. Uh, but maybe it's some other group of pages that you didn't even, that you didn't even realize were affecting people's behavior on your site. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that, that's just, that makes so much sense. So like we can focus so much on overall, uh, performance of a website and page and getting it down, but mm-hmm. but yeah, but you have to look at the demographics of people who are coming to your site and the different areas in which they are interacting with your website, and then kind of just is is that like a fair assessment of the activity? Kind of, yeah. It's 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 sort of just if, if somebody's coming to your site, say, and they're using it, 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 the nice thing. So just back up a little bit, just to clarify that the thing about activity impact scoring is it's totally based on your own users and your own site. So there's a lot of stuff out there, like case studies about this retail site, that media site, and so on and so on. Um, but ultimately, it's really easy to discount those things if you're a site owner because you say my users are different, my site is different. So what it lets you do is um, understand how your particular, you know, your entire 100% of your users um, 
historically, because you're looking at, you know, potentially billions of page views, uh, billions of uh, beacons worth of data, kind of putting it, uh, put, going into the system. And it's kind of, it's, it's a bit of like predictive analytics. It's saying that in the past, when these pages um, were faster or slower, it didn't really affect session length as much as these other pages that were fast, that when they, when they were faster or slower. So it's just that, that variability. So, um, so you can then look at your data and prioritize performance optimization for your, for your pages. So again, it just, it just, it, it lets people get on the same page and stops you from having this like kind of straw man argument, which happens a lot, even in, you know, a sensibly data driven, you know, environments where everybody thinks everybody has their pet idea and, and <laughs> kind of sticks with that. Right. Right. Yeah, well, it's, it's, yeah, because you always you always get that whole like it depends argument when yeah. you go to things. It's like, well, that yeah, that's you know, your case study is awesome, or or your solution was great, but it depends on you know X Y Z. So we we actually talked about this a little bit with conferences and 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 talks in the last episode, but uh, but yeah, I could totally see how like just focusing on your own users, which is what you know everyone usually says at a conference anyway, just to focus mm-hmm. on your own on users for your data and. And what they're doing. So yeah, so I totally understand. That's a great approach for doing that. Okay, um, I do want to leave leave this topic for a second and just back up a little bit. And we talked a little bit about history about how you you had Uber and then you like <laughs> Uber. Uh, but how do you go from Uber ninety eight to um, performance sorry, to performance? Yeah, that's like <laughs> a, <laughs> it's a big it's a big leap. Um, so I did a bunch of things like most people. Um, at, so probably the, the the bulk of the the early part of of my web career was working. I was a partner at a web consulting firm uh, that's based in Vancouver uh, called Habanero. They're still great. They're still there. Um, and I was there for five years and um, helped pioneer at the time. So this would have been like ninety eight to two thousand and whatever, five years after that is 2003, something like that. Um, that, My years are blurry as I get older. (laughs) I just think in decades now. Um, And uh, what we did that was really interesting there was um, there wasn't a lot, people were talking about usability and it was a bit of a buzzword, but nobody was, at least on the consulting side, was really doing much to actually measure it. And so we developed... Um, I think one of the first usability test labs in Vancouver, right in our office, to to test sites for our clients and just do real user testing. And I'm a little like in hindsight, like looking back on it, I'd be a little embarrassed comparing like what a test environment back then was to what a test environment now is. But at the time, we were totally bleeding edge, man. And uh, you know, just so, the so, idea. So, so describe that for for us. <laughs> Draw uh, us a picture, Tammy. I will paint you a picture <laughs> of whatever was like the hottest. Mac at the time on, you know, in a really slick little gas town, Vancouver office with like some exposed brick and all those great things that we loved back then. Um, and, 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 and actually calling up real users. Like we would, we had this like network, this database of, of people that we would, we would talk to and bring them in um, that were, you know, we slice and dice in different, different demographics. And we would just give them tasks to do. So we would like come up with like, well, what are the use cases based on, you know, what we, what we had determined with the client. And we would like, we would just watch them and we would, um, and it was really hard because they're like basically working with prototypes that we had built, like, you know, kind of on screen and it really laid bare how much, what we thought we were doing that was helping people still sucked I mean, kind of, you know, it was, it was, you know, good in a lot of ways, but, you know, it, I think that usability testing, I think it's still like trying to sell customers back in the late nineties, early two thousands, the idea that they needed to do user testing. Once they did it once they were, they were like, they were sold. They saw the difference between the pre-test version and the, and the post-test version of, of the site. And they saw that it was more successful. Um, and after that they were sold in, into, into doing it over and over again with everything. But I see that even now in 2016, People, you know, site owners are still not doing usability testing, which makes me feel crazy because to me, um, what drove me crazy and, 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 and the people that I worked with at Habanero crazy was this idea that, um, that we knew that we just like, we had, we had like this, this access to, you know, the, the usability gods and we could just say what was going to work for, for, for users and getting into these, 
kind of straw man conversations where everybody is kind of like, well, I think what users would like is this. And I think users prefer left-hand navigation. And I think users prefer top, you know. And so just the idea of like just cutting down on a lot of that conversation and a lot of the opinionating and, and actually having real results, real data to work with. So from so, so it was a really a huge privilege to be able to do that early on and to have that experience. And then from there, I actually got into working for um, CBC um, doing web production um, on some, some large web properties they had. And then um, kind of made the jump back into the user, the user experience side of things, working for a company called Strange Loop, which um, they uh, uh, had some really great solutions around front-end optimization, so actually doing stuff to make pages faster. And when I went to work for Strange Loop, what they knew they wanted to do was, and this was would, would have been 2000 and, oh God, 2009, 2009, um, where they knew that, that, that um, the intersection between performance and user experience was a really big deal. There were a few little case studies that had come out here and there around it at, at like velocity conferences um, in, in a couple of previous years, but they really wanted to amplify that, do original research and actually make a lot of noise around that. And so they hired me to be the noise maker because just because I had that background, but I had no experience in performance whatsoever. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. So they just tapped you like, hey, we need we need someone to, to look into this and you have the background available. To write about it in, an, in a non-technical way. Oh, nice. Because they, 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 they knew they wanted to speak to, um, and I, I talked about them in the past tense because they've since been acquired by another company called Radware. So the technology still is out there. It's very healthy and flourishing and all that. Um, I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. Um, but yeah, they wanted, they, they wanted to talk about it to a non-technical audience. So um, so a lot, of, a lot of the way that I have, always written and how I continue to write is just, I want anybody to be able to kind of get the message and yeah. Right. And I think uh, what, I think a good example of that probably would be the uh, Super Bowl graphic. Yeah. So I, I, I make a lot of graphics just cause it's really fun. And uh, there's like some really good software out there that lets you do it and uh, and have some fun with that. So it's funny because I'm I, first and foremost I'm a writer, but I don't actually think that people read a lot of the things that I write from top to bottom. Right. So I kind of learned how to make some graphics because at least people will look at the graphics, right. and you know, and then and then hopefully that'll tempt them into to scanning the rest of the article. Okay. Well, yeah, I hope you don't mind if I just pull this one. And I have an example. Yeah, but I think it's, it's sure. great. Yeah, Super Bowl pop culture. Uh, one of America's biggest exports, good or bad, uh, out there. <laughs> uh, and so, just explain what what you're doing with the Super Bowl. So, so yeah. So the, the one of the fun things at Sosta is you know that we're always asking questions about you know about how does performance affect people just in 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 everything. So it's kind of fun because it's kind of getting outside the whole of here's some retail case studies and here's some media case studies and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just like how we use the web. It's so integrated now into just everything we do. Like, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit that I, like my phone is just always in my pocket. And when it's not, it's probably because I'm using my iPad or something like I'm never just watching TV, for example. So just with this integration, it's like asking yourself, well, um, if, if this thing is happening here, like the Super Bowl, mm -hmm. and I have to admit, I, I, I'm, I'm not a football person at all, but I've, I'm going to play my Canadian card here. Um, we have other sports. And uh, so, uh, so if, if, if somebody's watching this, like, this, this big game, well, what else are they doing? And if they're doing these other things online, do they care about performance? You know, so just sort of seeing like how these lines blur between all of our different behaviors. And so um, what we do a lot of around big events is um, we tap Harris Interactive to do Harris polls for us. So it's not it's not our, our research, although it is original research. And they just survey you know, thousands of people and just ask them these questions. And we, it's fine because we can just think, well, what, what, what do we want to know? Um, so this is actually part of a much bigger poll where we just wanted to know how people, you know, what, how they'd be multitasking um, and what they would be doing. And so, like, we found that, you know, uh, 60, almost 60% 60 of them said they would be watching the game 
you know, in uh, on their TV, laptop, mobile device, and about half of them would be researching game scores and player stats during a game. So that's kind of interesting. And about 42% of them said that they would be um, at some point during the game on social media, on fan sites, something like that, um, uh, just cheerleading. Um, and that about a third of them said that they would be following players on social media and just sort of like maybe cheering them on via social media. And then this is one of my favorites was 17% of them said that they would be using the internet to trash talk other teams. <laughs> I was actually surprised that it wasn't higher. So I, um, maybe that I suspect that number actually went up on, on, on game day. Yeah, um, so I just thought, it, so just really interesting. So if you, if you are a site owner, um, just thinking about, well, you know, do, will all of these sites be functional? Can they can they can they support that level of traffic that might be coming um, to them? And and you know, will will they just let people do these things that they expect to be able to do seamlessly? And we did a little. We have something at um, so that we developed um, called the Consumer Performance Index, and anybody can go and use it. It's just consumerperformanceindex.com. And what it, what you can do is it, it takes all this HDB archive data. Um, so that's, that's publicly available, synthetic test data. And it, um, it, it pulls all that in. So I think it's, uh, the HB archive, uh, draws from like half a million or so of the most popular sites in the world. So all that data is pulled in on a regular basis. And then, um, and then we all, we take that, um, load time data and we correlate that against uh, this massive archive that we have of real user data for, um, for, for sites in different, um, verticals. So, you know, uh, retail, but then breaking it down into subgroups within retail, um, media, and so on. And we can, by looking at how um, how how people um, engaged with sites in real, uh, that, that, that we've tracked using RUM data, real user uh, measurement data, um, we can extrapolate a lot about how, what the speed of the, the sites that's measured via the HB archive, um, how, how engaging those sites are to, to visitors. Does that make sense? Stop me if I need to explain it again. <laughs> I think if I need it one more time, I think like, like so basically, okay. so what's the consumer performance index data? So you said synthetic data. You lost me at synthetic data. Like, okay. what, what is synthetic data? So synthetic performance data is, um, it comes from web page test. So web page test is, is a synthetic measurement tool that's, it's really awesome. It's free. It's just webpagetest.org. Anybody can use it. Okay. And you pop in your, your, the simplest way to use it is pop in your URL and just submit. And uh, the default settings will um, tell you the synthetic load times, which tend to be a little bit slower than, than uh, times that we get in real user monitoring. But but they're, they're pretty close. So definitely it's, it's a worthy metric. And it will tell you, among other things, what the synthetic load time is for that page. And you can test any page on the internet, not just your own pages. It will tell you how many resources on, are on that page, what types of resources they are. It'll give you a nice waterfall diagram so you can see right. how those resources um, uh, render on the page. And it'll tell you, you know, what the total weight of that page is. So lots of, lots of good stuff in there. Right. And so the web, so HDB Archive takes um, web page test data. It, it takes um, this half million or so sites as ranked by Alexa, runs them through the HDB archive, grabs all the, those synthetic numbers and pulls it. And so anybody can use it's HDB archive dot. Oh, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember. Let me see. Now I have to. Dot org, HTTP archive dot org. Um, and you can look at historical data going all the way back to 2011 for um, for the, the, the all the sites or for the top 1,000 or even for the top 100. And it's really neat. It just let, lets you slice and dice this page data in a lot of really cool ways. And so what the Consumer Performance Index does um, is it takes all that synthetic data um, and it allows you to search for um, all the sites that are crawled by the HDB archive. But it takes... Um, a particular site's data, and it correlates that are uh, with with um, our real user monitoring data. So, for example, if you were to look at uh, the the 
the uh, consumer performance index, we call it CPI score for say Amazon on, uh, on, on via our tool. Um, Amazon isn't a customer of ours because they do all the real user monitoring in house. So we don't have actually any visibility into their RUM data, but we can take um, their synthetic score via um, HCB archive and we can look at um, retail sites and see, well, okay, with, with this, this huge cohort of retail sites that we are measuring, where we know that um, pages that, the median page load for this, this group of sites um, is, correlates to a certain level of engagement. So the engagement in this case is Oh God, you think I remember this? Yeah. Is uh, is is uh, a bounce rate? We can then say that uh, if your site, if we, if, so looking at these two things, we can say that well, if the median bounce rate for sites that were um, X fast, they say they you know rendered in six seconds, um, and your site also renders in six seconds, then we can we can assign you a CPI score based on that. Oh, wow. Does that make more sense? Right. So, and then in the CPI index, I can just go, that number is already assigned. I can just like pull up like Amazon and, and pull up their number. Yeah. Is that right? It's in there. So, so we, we refresh our data um, uh, every month um, nice. a lot, when, when the HTTP archive is refreshed. And so it's always what we do is reflecting what they have. So um, if you want to really a better um, explanation of how the CPI index works. We actually wrote a blog post about it. Okay. Um, or you can just run the site through, you can just run any URL through uh, consumerperformanceindex.com. Right. And on the results page, it'll say, how is it measured? And it will give you a much more concise, which I should have just read to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, <it's great>. no. <laughs> concise version of, of, of this. Um, oh, you're doing yeah. great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I just I just plugged in Amazon.com because we we talked about it, not that we're uh, uh, beating up on it or anything like that. So it's got a score of 79 out of 100. Yeah, and that's and I can just preview the reports. Yes. And, so yeah, so you can. Um, so the report is actually um, it's it's more recommendations for things you can do um, to to improve your your render time. Um, so yeah, so and, and it kind of comes with the with the score attached. One thing that I want to really emphasize when we're doing this scoring is is it's based on an an absolute scale of zero to one hundred. Um, seventy nine doesn't mean like woohoo, I got a seventy nine. It's uh, it, so I just want to be really clear about the optics of what a score like that is. It's actually it's it's okay, but it could definitely be better. So in an ideal world, you'd actually want to be a, like a kind of a 95 or, or more or 90, right. 95 or more. I mean, Amazon, they're obviously doing all right. So I guess 79, whatever Amazon, geez. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, they used to be faster, um, at least according to synthetic measurements. So, um, yeah. so it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like you said, we, we don't know what their internals are and they have a different. Exactly. They, they, they have their, maybe their own data. So it's like, we got to slow things down. We got it. Exactly. You just don't know, right? Like that's every site's different. So when you want to presume to, to, to know, like it's, it's so when, when somebody goes to get their CPI score, I would want them to look at that metric alongside with a bunch of other things. So there's no single, I mean, we talk about the unicorn metric at SOSA. There's no unicorn metric that just tells you everything. Every metric tells you something different. Right. Yeah. Or no civil, civil bullet or no, no magic thing. Like, okay. But yeah, so you recently spoke at RWD Summit, speaking of things I forgot about yesterday. And, it feels uh, like longer ago. So much has happened since then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Arrived <laughs> uh, so many April Fool's jokes. So. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, uh, but yeah, so we're recording this on April Fool's, in case you want. <laughs> which, is, which is, which, and the internet being what it is, it's kind of hard mm. to deal with this. So, uh, but yeah, your, your presentation was about, uh, about mobile and performance and stuff like that. So I wanted to, just uh, follow up on a few things about it, but uh, and just you know ask you, you know, some of the key the key things that you answered in your talk and um, and see if what you're if it's okay. But I just ask you, yeah, uh, uh, who's using mobile, you know, now these days? Um, so it's interesting. Like 
I've seen so many articles in the past year, year and a half about millennials and mobile that it gets a little bit galling because I'm far from being a millennial um, and I use mobile all the time. So I think that there was a, there was, there was a, a path that at least the tech media were going down, which was, which is very, um, you know, catch word, buzzword, you know, oriented, which is mobile millennials, uh, you know, and, like you need to design for these people. And um, yeah, you should definitely design for millennials um, and, and, and optimize for millennials, but really you should optimize for everybody. Uh, so one of the stats that I mentioned yesterday is that in, uh, in the United States, you know, 92% of adults have a cell phone. And another, uh, there's another set that I didn't mention because it's a little bit older. And I think I actually used it when I did the State of the Union last year. But at the time, something like three out of four people worldwide. Um, oh, no, sorry. It was projected thing that three or four people worldwide were going to be on mobile by like 2020 or something like that. So this idea that there's like a particular um, mobile demographic is something that I want to really, I would, I would love to, to start hearing put to rest. Um, one of the other stats that I mentioned yesterday was just the the, the fact that um, so many people are kind of aging into this 46 to, to 55 demographic. That's actually that's the fastest growing mobile using demographic. And it's just because it's people like me and, and my peers that are all kind of aging into it. Um, so to, So we need to stop thinking about that is being like, oh, this is the seniors category and they don't use mobile or anything like that. Like it's, it's just all being, and, and oh, one of the other stats too, actually, I'm just remembering, um, was that um, one out of four purchases made on a mobile device is made by somebody over the age of 55. So that's really, really interesting to me. So you kind of have this one stat, which is like 81% of millennials use mobile primarily to shop, but then you've got this stat at the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, well, older people are, 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 completing transactions there as well. So, um, and there's some older usability research that I think is really interesting around how different age groups use the internet. And kind of by now, I think that the the older cohort of this is, is probably in the, the kind of 65 plus category. Um, but uh, psychologically, according to this, this uh, Nielsen Norman study, um, if you're older, if you're in the 65 and plus age group, you are um, more likely to want to be patient with how a page renders. But actually, the slower a page is, the more it actually just messes you up at a cognitive level. And that kind of makes sense, right? Like, I mean, as, as, as we get older, you know, after the age of, of 25, your memory degrades like every year and you know it, it kind of gets noticeable at certain key, like sort of key ages in your life um so it makes sense that just from a pure cognitive load perspective you know it, making pages slower for people who are willing to wait is really bad for them and we know that even a person is essentially willing to wait um uh and, and you know they, they, they've sort of established themselves as being that kind of person if as a retailer for example you want people not just to come onto your site complete the transaction and leave, which is, you know, anybody can do that, even no matter how poor their memory is. Like I can remember why I came to a site, what you might lose track of as, as that older user who is more affected at a cognitive level by, by slow page loads is, um, is flipping through pages, browsing, you know, you're just less likely to browse. You just kind of want to get in, you want to get out. And so um, that, that kind of add to cart function, you know, you can really kind of shoot yourself in the foot there with, with that demographic. A little bit of this is me extrapolating based on a, on a bunch of different bits of research, but it's, you know, it, it feels truthful enough. And I'll just play the April Fool's Day card if it ends up being total <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> well, I thought right, right stat there's going to be more that senior citizens, I guess, or seasoned citizens, uh, as old people. Old people um, over 55, <laughs> 65, there are kids under five pretty soon, <laughs> five years or so. So at least I think it's five years or so. I was find that graphic or not. So, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely going to be a lot, you know, it's not just millennials, like you said, it could be using just mobile devices. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I definitely see that. Okay. Totally. Cool. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that there's so many people are just going straight to, um, just straight to smartphones. You know, like a lot of people, you know, if, if it might be that if you're not a knowledge worker or a tech worker, you might never have a laptop or a desktop computer. Yeah, which is crazy. Like, I don't know. Man, I don't know. For me, it's, it's weird, just, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's pretty sweet having a laptop, I want to say, but uh, uh, get this email thing you could do. It's a lot easier. 
I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, you could you could surf the web better. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so but yeah, it's so I guess that's where people like they just see millennials on a phone, maybe. I just I'm just throwing this out there that so but they don't see them on a laptop, you know, a lot of times. So Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe, yeah, that's kind of that knowledge right there. But uh well, I think it's also there's some interesting stuff around like what different demographics consider acceptable behavior with mobile. Yeah, so so, so yeah, that's a great question. Let me let me can you answer that question? Because like my niece, like they <laughs> they're growing up, and my nieces and nephews they're growing up with tablets, and that's in, in which is awesome because like they didn't exist when we grew when I was growing up, uh, which is like in a dinosaur age too. But uh, <laughs> you know, but now they're like you know they're okay. They assume tablets are a thing. There'll be mm-hmm. there'll never be a world without an internet connected tablet, except you know when they walk out of the house and there's no Wi-Fi. But um, so so what does that mean? You know for for their for the younger generation you know, like in terms of mobile performance so. yeah it's um so it's interesting like there's a few i mean there's a, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in that like so one thing is just like the, just the tablet thing yeah. uh for example um the what I think um, people can easily forget, and, and I have a bit of insight into looking at this because I look at a lot of real user data, is that tablet performance generally sucks. And the reason for, like even compared to smartphone performance, when I look at median load times for specific sites, tablet is, you know, on median is, is always like, it's like you have desktop, you have smartphone, and then you have tablet. You know, in terms of in terms of slowness, and that's because everybody's using old tablets. You know, people just don't replace their tablets the way they oh, replace okay. their phone. And your desktop is always going to be you know fairly robust, unless you you know you, you're getting pretty creaky with like an eight year old one. But just as like to illustrate, like I my my tablet is four years old, and mm-hmm. it sucks. You know, it's so <laughs> slow. <laughs> it's just like you know, it's it's you know, nobody would, no, very few people would use a four-year-old phone, or at least a very few people that, that, that I know. But lots of people would use four-year-old tablets, or even older. And so, um, but to but to think that that demographic isn't an important demographic, and that you need to do something to mitigate ex- the experience for them, and it's a really tricky demographic too, because they expect desktop levels of performance. Yeah. Um, and they expect a desktop-like experience, um, and yet they're using just the crappiest thing you could be using right now. Right. So, <laughs> it's uh, so that's 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 one aspect right there. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, that that explains it. Yeah, that's a good, good rationale because uh, I, I just upgraded my iPad, but I, it took me forever to upgrade it because I wasn't really happy with what was out there on the market mm-hmm. to replace it, and then I didn't really. Uh, but but yeah, but I'm usually. At the time, too, I was like, you know, just replacing the smartphone every year or every mm-hmm. other year, and those are getting better and better all the time, faster and faster, or something. So yeah, so and I use my phone now way more than I use my tablet. Like for the things I used to do on my tablet, I do on my phone now. Yeah, yeah which which is also another thing I've, I've noticed with with my friends is that you know they don't use their tablets, but I love my tablet. So uh, well, and I think there's so many there's so many cool things that are that are being built for tablets that are like really. The tablet is the best way to consume certain types of content, like certain games, um, like magazines. Like they're just you can get pretty much any magazine in tablet format now, like through like texture. Or, yeah, next issue is now called texture. Um, so things like that. So I would hate to see people think, oh, suddenly tablets don't matter. When I think in a lot of ways, tablets are really finding their niche. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be like a big uh, like you know pep rally for tablets, but uh, yeah, but I will say like uh, the P- Apple Pencil is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Really, I just just got it, and I just like it's probably the first stylus. I hate saying the word stylus when I talk about the Apple Pencil too, but, <laughs> but uh, it's like the, it, it has the weight of a pencil to, in mm-hmm. my hand, and I when I use the apps, it just it just flows very well. And you know, I have and I I pretty much bought every stylus you know from from you know that, that you think of for mm-hmm. drawing and styling. It's the first one that's like, yeah, I could see working with this on a tablet, and I'm not really an illustrator. But I, I do need to draw boxes and arrows for layouts and for, oh, and for cool. stuff too. So yeah, so I I I've enjoyed it and I can see myself working with an iPad and more so mm-hmm. than I have in the past. So well, it's funny, right? It just goes to show. I mean, I remember a year. It was a year or two years ago. There was like there was some article in one of the big tech publications that was just saying, "Oh, tablets are dead." Like it was, and everybody jumped all over that. Like a lot of people were agreeing with it, and a lot of people not agreeing with it. I don't think you should ever count rule anything out. I mean, 
iPods and, 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 and smartphones are basically glorified Palm Pilots and Apple Newtons, you know, and they're just, they just found the right time. And they, they, you know, they had just the right amount of like apps, like just the apps and use cases and everything like that. So yeah, I, I think that you, this is where, again, you have to really keep your eyes open. Yeah. And then also, I mean, I, I still, I still had time to digest the Apple announcements though, but but you know they embraced the smallness factor too. So like we had, they had the iPad Pro, which is like this huge honking device, mm-hmm. and now they're they have the Apple, uh, the iPhone, uh, you know sixes, whatever. Like are huge monolith phones. Like here, I got mine. Right here, I just hold it, hold it up right here. So yeah, yeah, no. Like, like I'm six, I'm six foot seven, and I love this phone. <laughs> but if I get to like someone else, it's just like it's a, it's a tablet to them. So it's uh, and so <laughs> Apple releases like all these small iPhones and small iPad Pros, so you know it's a, you know, maybe they see something that yeah, it's better to go small instead of going mm-hmm. going large. So, but yeah, okay, cool. But yeah, that is that's pretty cool. I didn't know that, but people expected uh, that the uh, you know tablets are dead, but they're not not terribly so. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you see that. Okay, what are the biggest performance issues that you see that are out there that people have, that the companies have? Um, so uh, one of the things, so there's a, there's a companion to the HTTP archive, which is the mobile HTTP archive, which, um, crawls pages that are, um, via, via web page tests, uh, mobile test. So it's not to say that it's it's only, um, measuring, um, mobile sites or mobile optimized sites It's measuring like all sites that are visited by anybody using a mobile device. So it's, 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 uh, so it, it's just measuring what the user experience would be for mobile. And what is interesting to me about that is that it just shows, if you look at the, actually I haven't looked at um, the mobile HTTP archive, I think in a couple of months, but the last time I looked, um, you know, something like uh, 20% of pages uh, had more than a hundred resources. Um, so the, you think about that, you just think about the complexity of that. Like, it's not even just that they're, that they're, that they're fat pages. And that, that was one of the other things was that the, the, the average page was over a megabyte in size, which is pretty crazy when you think about the fact that like in 2000 and I don't know, early 2000s or two, early 2010s, sorry. Um, the average page is about, you know, a third, a quarter of that size, right. um, that was served in mobile, but you have these, these, these hundred assets and just the, the the complexity of it, you know, where where you know, just a few years ago, you we thought it was a big deal that the number of of uh, hosts survey like hosting content that, that your pages are pulling from was like seven, like seven was amazing. Like oh my god, I can't believe it's the content's coming from seven different places, and now you know I see I see sites that have uh, fifty or sixty different hosts or more. So, and all the, you know, just so, so many third parties out there and each one of them representing a potential point of failure is something that's really huge. And failure, it means a lot of things. It's not just like, oh, it's going to crash your site. It's, it's, is it slow? Is it just having, is it having a slow day? Um, have they, are they, are they taking it, you know, are they, are they, are they changing it or making some kind of change on a day that's really important to your business? We actually, that happened to a customer of ours, Nordstrom, where they're, um, they're they had not told one of the third party providers that, um, Oh yeah, by the way, we have this massive sale once a year. It's this is really, really big deal. That was the day the third party provider made changes to their the, to to the script. And it just blew up for, for, for Nordstrom. And now they've actually built into their whole, you know, engineering and, and testing process, letting all the third party providers know this is, you know, we, we've got this event happening. Please let us know. So that sort of thing. So probably third parties, um, Things like custom fonts, you know, yeah. custom fonts are, are awesome. You know, branding is super important. And I would be the first person to um, agree with the fact that if you have a major brand, you need to, you think that's, that's a big part of how you sell yourself online and your font is a big part of your brand. So, but y- y- there are ways to do it that are smart and ways that are to do it that are not so smart. So like externally hosted fonts problem. Um, having your, I've seen sites where, um, the, the font, the, 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 the custom font was hosted externally, 
and it wasn't working for whatever reason. And you see the waterfall, just long red bar as nothing is rendering on the page. This is blocking the rest of the page from rendering. And then it doesn't even render. Like you just, it ends up finally defaulting to whatever the default font is. And then the rest of the page loads. Right. So things like that, and, and that was a major retail set. I'm not going to say which one, but you know, uh, so it's a target. You can say it's target. No, it's not target. <laughs> no, it was another site. Um, I don't even know if it was a Sosa customer. So uh, it was, it was a, probably somebody else. I'm going to say that. Um, but uh, so, so things like that, and all it takes is just one thing, just one little tiny script. Yes, yeah. And that's yeah. Uh, Rebecca Murphy. She was a, uh, she made a point of, uh, uh, you know, she she works with JavaScript. She's a big JavaScript person. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, you know, kind of a major role right now, if I if I if I remember correctly. But uh, but yeah, uh, one of the things that she says, like when she does like JavaScript apps and so with that, is that she does she doesn't rely on uh, third party uh, hosting mm-hmm. of scripts anymore. Like if it's even if it's jQuery, she's like, that's great. You can you can actually bring that in and host it yourself. And make it part of your build, and say it's you know, here's a big gigantic uh, JavaScript file that's only one file, and mm-hmm. put that in there because by having that third party, uh, it just it, it opens you up to a point of failure if that site just happens to go down or they have a slow day. You know, it's mm-hmm. maybe their CDN is having a bad day or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, so I definitely see that. And then fonts, we well, we had a discussion about fonts also at our RDD summit too, but. Uh, but yeah, but there's also like uh, you know Dave Rupert has a blog post about uh, uh, getting rid of uh, fonts, you know, as as well as you mm-hmm. know if, if you don't need it, you know, you, need, you know fonts are awesome and stuff like that. But if you're gonna host third-party fonts, maybe that's not that the best best way if you can get away with Verdana, if you will. Yeah. But yeah. Well, or just it just be like I've seen yeah I've seen posts where people just said you know pick your battles, like find a place where you really need to use that font and then use the defaults everywhere else. Like, yeah. so, um, like I, what I, what I really have been enjoying in the past year or so is just all the talk there's been about performance budgets, yeah. um, where people are. And, and, uh, uh, Ryan Ireland was on before, before me yesterday and he had did a great talk about that. Just how to, how, well, like what a performance budget is. Um, you know, just the idea that you, you, you cap, you know, page size or number of assets or whatever, and and then just how you how you manage that and you build a culture around managing it. So it's not just a developer issue or an engineer's issue. It's like people in marketing need to know about it. People in design need to know about it. Like everybody who touches the page needs to buy into this idea that they with everything they they do affects performance. All right. Exactly. Cool. That's about it for me. I, I think it's been great. So thank you so much. Yeah. So w- what is the title of the book? What is what is it about? Um, it is called Time is Money, uh, The Business Value of Web Performance. It is uh, being published by O'Reilly. It'll be out in May of this year. Um, and what it covers is um, it's kind of a summary um, of, of, of everything that I've done over the past seven years um, sort of encapsulated in one book, which is a little bit humbling that it can be, that it can be done. Um, so there's uh, some, some stuff in there. Some it's really, it's, it's sort of the greatest hits version of, of a lot of things that I've written and I'll, and some original and some new stuff in there as well, of course, um, where, uh, talking about the psychology of performance, you know, why do we care about performance? What's the, you know, why does it matter? And it's not just this like nice to have thing, but why it actually really does affect people. Um, that's one of my favorite chapters. And then the subsequent chapters are, um, a lot of cases studies around um, the the impact of performance on so many user experience and business metrics. I mean, my one of my my slogans is, you know, I've never met a, a metric that wasn't affected by performance in some way. All you have to do is have it. If you look at if you look at your site and you um, look at the all the different metrics that are available, like business and UX metrics, and you have enough data, you can find something that it was affected by performance. Um, so it, whether it's bounce rate or uh, time on site or revenue or conversion or um, even at the back end, like bandwidth costs, things like that, things that you don't really think about, Pro- uh, user productivity, customer retention rate. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a, a, a something that you are making available as a service online, you know, um, you know, how, how well are people able to actually use it and, and complete tasks? So every, you know, everything is affected. So it's, it's broken down in a lot of chapters about that. So I'm very excited, as you can tell. <laughs> yes. It's awesome, yeah. And and you said like it was a, 
uh, a free sample or a, right now? Is that right? Yeah, there's the, um, so O'Reilly has uh, made a couple of chapters right, okay. um, available for free as an ebook, and you can actually download those at sosta.io slash time is money book. Okay, we'll have a link in our show notes as well. So Cool, okay. And then the actual book will be um, available. It's available for pre-order right now on the O'Reilly site, but it'll be available in March. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. One, congratulations. Thank you. Do, is this an animal book? Do you have an animal? No, I'm not in the, I'm not, because I'm not, it's not a developer uh, book. It's, it's, so the audience for this is, I kind of like envision it as two audiences the way I envision everything that I write. So I okay. think of there being like a, a business and marketing site owner, non-technical person who just wants to understand why does this matter? You know, um, and then I think of there being like a performance engineer, a developer person who knows performance matters and is beating their head against the wall and just wants something that they can give their boss or other people on their team to say like, here's why we need to like actually focus more resources on oh, it. That, that is, that is awesome. That is, that is, that's such a great, as someone who's written like 10 plus books, I think that's an awesome, awesome book. I can't wait. I'm going to, can't wait to read it. Thanks. Great idea. I love the concept. I can't wait to read it. All right. Uh, I was. Uh, we usually ask what you're passionate about, or what's your, what, what uh, we're looking for in the future. So, uh, you could say it's performance, and I would totally believe you. So, <laughs> so but if there's something else, just let me know. Let us know. There's a few things. I mean, I I actually um, I read a lot. So I oh god. But right now, actually, so my house is being renovated. I'm, and so what I'm passionate about is it being done. I'm really excited <laughs> about that. And the, you, you can hear the drilling right now, maybe. Um, the, when the drilling ends in a few weeks, it'll be an exciting day. Um, but no, I, I, I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction and uh, some really cool stuff. And if I was going to give a shout out maybe to a book that, or a pair of books that I've read lately, mm-hmm. it would be the uh, You Are Not So Smart and You Are, you are Now... You are not so smart, and you are now less dumb. It's a pair of books, um, uh, kind of based on the "You Are Not So Smart" podcast, um, that are just all about all the different ways that we fool ourselves um, oh, nice. at, a, at, a, at, a, at a cognitive level. You know, just like our, our many, many, many biases, and it just like lays them there and nice. makes you question everything you've ever thought you knew. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really good pair of books. Definitely recommend them. Cool. Awesome. We'll put those in the show notes as well. Right, hey, cool. excellent. And then how can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter um, at Tam Everts, T-A-M-E-V-E-R-T-S. Um, I blog at uh, performancebeacon.com. And I also co-curate with Tim Cadlick, who is um, awesome performance expert at Akamai. And we co-curate um, WPO stats, which is kind of a repository of performance-related case studies. Oh yes, which is awesome. I guess it's also a great site. So yes. Yeah, Tim gets some credit for coming up with the idea. I'm kind of like the tag along who's like, okay, well, I know where there are some case studies we could add. So yeah, I have some props to, to Tim. Yeah, and and I guess also that's that the goal of that site is also just to showcase how important performance is by with using stats and. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So if anyone knows that, and if anyone has a case study that's like very data driven, you know, we are we're always adding to it so they can just uh, pop us a note. It's uh, through GitHub and uh, we will add it to the, the site. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Tammy. And hope Thanks to so to much, soon. Chris. Yeah. Okay. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.